Hello, good day, and welcome to Party in China, Series 2, Episode 17. I'm Party Parslow, and in this exciting episode, my evening in Shanghai continues with lovely Ronna and her two friends, Coco and Ruth. I know I moan about the crowds in China, but the crowds we encountered on the way to the Bund were such crowded crowds, they deserve their own word. Super throng. Mega mob. I don't know, I welcome your suggestions. Just think of the worst crowd you've ever been in and multiply that by seven. Or maybe 17. The streets were divided with a wall of uniformed men down the centre of the road. A cop or a soldier every few feet, close enough to hold hands and push people back into tighter formation. It was very effective. President Trump should consider the same thing for Mexico. It's cheaper than building a wall and would solve his unemployment problems. Oh, and there's going to be unemployment problems. Paddy Paslow, hello. Hello, Paddy Paslow. This is President Donald Trump here. You're stupid. I met some stupid people in my day. Stupid, stupid, stupid. But you, Paddy, you top the list. Stupid, stupid, stupid. With no room to take a proper step, we shuffled slowly forward while many hundreds of thousands hobbled the other way, on the other side of the uniforms. Incredibly, individual Chinese occasionally fought the flow, heading in the wrong direction like salmon trying to make it upstream. Very stupid, very stubborn, very selfish salmon, doomed to failure. I despised this crowd, much more than my fondness for Ronna or politeness to her friends could overcome, but I was stuck. Then I saw something which made it all worthwhile. For the final block before the river, our human fence posts were all People's Liberation Army. They'd run out of coppers. But these guys, they weren't just fence posts. They were gates, too. Traffic was still on the road beside the Yangtze, so the soldiers stood across our path, enforcing the Don't Walk sign. When the traffic light went amber, that uniformed barrier split in the middle and, still holding hands, opened like a pair of gates, the soldiers skipping Busby Berkeley style until the end of our gate could hold hands with his opposite number. They now formed a wall stopping the cars instead and we flowed forward onto the riverbank, which was free range. So Ronna, Ruth, Coco and I lost each other almost immediately and often. But they found me every time. I was at least a foot taller than almost anybody else there. Shanghai at night is impressive. The stunning lights and colours, the super modern skyscrapers on the Putong side of the river versus the old colonial buildings on the Bund. The river itself, full of crazily illuminated boats, steering between ugly, unlit barges transporting God knows what. I liked it, but not for long. I was still trapped in the worst crowd I'd ever experienced. 
So we rejoined the super throng and took several thousand tiny little paces towards another tourist place the girls wanted to take me, which was when these three intelligent young women demonstrated yet another incomprehensible Chinese attitude. Although we were being tightly controlled by thousands of soldiers, the girls tried to walk across the flow and duck under uniformed arms, then acted shocked and loudly protested when they were predictably repelled, although because they were young and pretty, reasonably politely repelled. When I asked why they even tried, they answered that they wanted to go that way. Oh! Ruth then doubled down on my bewilderment by asking me if I owned fields in Australia. I laughed as I answered no. Coco then inquired as to what foods my villagers grew. I laughed more. But they all insisted that even Shanghai has villagers who grow produce and assumed it must be the same in my city. Even though Rona has spent years interacting with foreigners and Ruth is studying for a master's degree in some sort of international business, they still have no real idea of how other people live. Rona then asked me what crops I would grow when the Australian authorities gave me some land. The idea of such governmental generosity really made me laugh. I tried to steer myself and my small harem towards the footpath side of the horde so that if we passed a pub, we could break formation and go in for a drink. I spied a couple of bars, but they were all too far away to make a break for it. The girls weren't interested anyway. Even after our military escort ended, the only practical thing was to go with the flow, which took us into People's Square and then down into the subway. Fortunately, that turned out to be where we wanted to go. A long, slow and insanely packed train took us to South Shanghai Station, with the three women nattering away with the velocity and familiarity of old friends. But when I interrupted to say, aren't we getting off here? They shut up, looked around, and we all suddenly barged, dodged, and shoved our way to and out the door. After hugs and farewells, Rona and I found a cab to the Green Tree Inn, which was run by a friend of hers. And I lay in bed considering perhaps the most bizarre aspect of a truly bizarre day. My first time out and about in the cosmopolitan, fun-filled, world-renowned party town of Shanghai, and I went to bed completely sober. On the morning of my second day in Shanghai, Rona knocked on my door, having stayed up all night talking to her manager friend. Her lack of sleep may be the reason we got lost on the way to the Shanghai Science and Technology Museum. But as Rona got us lost every day anyway, probably not. A few minutes into our second bus ride, Rona stood up to look at the route map, route map if you're in America, and the man stole her seat. 
After she ousted him with impressive volume and menace, she turned to me and asked sweetly, There's a botanic garden near here. Would you like to see the flowers? I don't mind, I replied, although I really wasn't interested. But will there be any flowers to see in autumn? She got up to ask the bus driver about the flowers. Why would a bus driver know about flowers? And an old woman stole her seat. Out of respect, Ronna didn't oust the old woman. But when I stood to give Ronna my seat instead, the old lady made a sound of disgust and relinquished her prize. Apparently, I'd outplayed her at a game I didn't know I was in. The bus driver did know all about the flowers, showing how much I did know about Shanghai bus drivers. He said there was a special exhibition on for the national holiday, so we alighted and entered what a highly polished sign entitled The Shanghai Civilised Garden. Astonishingly, Ronna was lost within 40 seconds. There was a map on the back of the ticket. The entrance was still in sight and she had no idea where she was. That's a very special talent. So I showed her the map on the ticket, pointed at a dinosaur on the map and took her to a nearby roped off area containing plastic statues of various animals oversized insects and dinosaurs. Now to us, a roped off area implies stay out. To the Chinese, it's an irrelevant minor impediment. Every statue from the baby elephant to a mother and child pair of velociraptors was festooned with toddlers and tourists. When Ronna asked me to stand in front of a giant praying mantis for yet another photo, I explained my Western reluctance to cross the rope. So she explained that everybody else was doing it, so it must be all right. A moment later, she had her 96th photo of me standing awkwardly in front of something I didn't care about. The 97th was in front of an ancient wooden loom in the temple of Huang Da Po. Apparently being sold into marriage at the age of 10, running away to the island of Hainan and then bringing the secrets of weaving cotton and silk back to your hometown was the sort of thing that earned you a temple in the 13th century. The 98th snap was nearly an action shot a series of pillars provided a zigzag line of raised stepping stones across a small pond. They'd stood there for decades, if not centuries, and been trodden upon by many, many thousands of Chinese feet. But halfway across, they started swaying alarmingly under my weight, and I was forced into an inelegant emergency skipping action to make it to the other side. For hours and hours, we wandered among magnolia and maple, azalea and rose, as well as taking in a calligraphy display, which I was assured was marvellous. 
Bored, I let Ronna navigate again to see what would happen. So when we left the gardens, it was by the wrong gate. Ronna asked for directions and armed with her new local knowledge, we immediately caught the wrong bus, got off at some station, caught a train to a subway, which took us to another subway. And by the time I'd forgotten where we were going and why, we found the Science and Technology Museum. It was very impressive. Huge, modern, stylish, constructed from miles of metal and acres of glass. Unfortunately, as we'd wasted hours on flowers, plus buses and trains, it was going to close soon. We dashed around and through fascinating sections like the spectrum of life, light of exploration, home on earth, world of robots, that it was good, human and health, earth exploration, light of wisdom and information era. We skipped the children's rainbow land and Ronna closed her eyes and ran through the spiders exhibition. That was fun to watch. They should make blindfold sprinting an Olympic event. We had just walked into a fake indoor rainforest when security put the lights and then us out. It's a world-class museum and deserved a whole day at least. I hoped to get back there, but never did, of course. Ronna's favourite part was a robot which played the piano, although she delighted in almost everything, skipping and leaping about like an excited child, clapping her hands in joy at each new discovery. It made her seem so young and innocent, it temporarily derailed any sexual feelings I had for her. More public transport led us to another friend of Ronna's called Flower. Now I'd already seen more than enough flowers that day, but this one was particularly nice, very short, slightly chubby, very friendly, no English. Irish John had recommended an Irish pub called the Blarney Stone, and Flower was to show us the way there. And having a Shanghai native along meant that it did take us slightly longer to become completely lost in the Tzu Hui quarter. Fortunately, a group of young Germans passed, heading to a street full of bars and restaurants, they said. Sounded good to me, I said. Yongkang Road was alive with noisy crowds of foreigners. For a block, both sides of the road were lined with eateries, bars, galleries, and, well, the Blarney Stone pub. There was no restriction on what or where you ate or drank. Grab a Guinness in the pub and then join a conversation in the coffee shop or buy fish and chips and then take them into the art gallery. I loved it. And I loved a Guinness. A perfectly poured pint from a Chinese barmaid who seemed angry I had a couple of Chinese women with me. Both Flower and Ronna tasted my Guinness and pronounced it disgusting. Ronna then agreed to a half pint of weak lager shandy and Flower elected to try a small Baileys and milk, which made her splutter and cough like it was the roughest Ratsina. Both of them were drunk in less than 10 minutes. 
When the girly giggling approached uproarious, we went for a walk so that the night air might sober them up a bit. Which was when I found a bottle shop called Cheers. And, oh what a night. Cooper's Sparkling Ale, my favorite Australian beer. I bought every bottle they had. They only had 11. For 198 yuan, say $3.20 a bottle. Rono said she'd never seen me look so happy. Flower worked at Pizza Hut and insisted she take us there for supper. Although I'm not a fan at home, I did enjoy the comfortable sense memory of having a slice of hot pizza in one hand and a bottle of cold beer in the other. As the metro stops at 11, a long cab ride took us all back to the hotel where the girls drunkenly trampolined on my huge bed leading to certain impure thoughts on my part, which they may have sensed. As they retired to Ronna's room, my new best friends, the Bottles of Coopers, and I watched the TV news featuring helicopter shots of the outrageous mega mob. I'd guesstimated many hundreds of thousands, but they said more than 3.1 million people had been there in the last couple of days. Strangely, I was unable to spot myself in the crowd. But the footage did focus on the soldiers, holding hands and prancing around, acting as swinging gates. And the bird's eye view made it look even more like a Busby Berkeley musical than it had from ground level. In the next episode of Party in China, my old nemesis, Sonny's English Club manages to stuff up my working visa all the way from Sichuan and I'm forced to undergo another awful, embarrassing medical examination. I hated it. You'll love it. I'm Party Parslow. Thank you for listening. You've been listening to Party in China. For more, like us on Facebook or follow us on Twitter. Subscribe to the podcast at Audio Boom, Stitcher, iTunes, or your favorite podcast distributor. This has been another quality podcast production from Bytes.com. <laughs>